Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and I hope to begin with verse 9. In the Bible, before you there in the pew, you'll find that on page 1075. Page 1075. But otherwise, we'll read from John 12, and we'll read verse 9, and I'm going to read to verse 50. Quite a long section to read, but it uh, contains the full account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So John 12 and verse 9. Where we read, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. That is, that he was in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion! Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. 
The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So far, the reading of Scripture this morning. Dear congregation, we consider this morning the events and especially the words of Jesus surrounding his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I'd like to consider with you the main figures that we see in this story, starting with Lazarus, then considering Jerusalem, the state of Jerusalem at the time, and then to think about Jesus, what he is doing here in this, in this event, and then to speak, lastly, of unbelief, especially of the Jewish people. Lazarus, Jerusalem, Jesus, and unbelief. Well, let's think about Lazarus in the first place. Congregation, John chapter 11. Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. And, of course, we know that story so well that we, we miss the, the earthquake that that was in Jewish society. Think now, a man was brought back to life that's, that's incredible. And not just that a man was brought back to life, but a man that was really dead, had been in the grave for days, people knew he was dead, was brought back to life, and there were eyewitnesses of the fact. Now, congregation, you can imagine that as that word spread abroad through Judea, right, there was 
staggering consequences of such an event. And really, that's why in the book of John, in the book of John, as you have it in the Bible here, that, that's really a dividing point between the chapters that go before the raising of Lazarus and the chapters that come after the raising of Lazarus. Because Jesus could not remain hidden any longer after he raised Lazarus from the dead. That makes sense, right? I mean, if there was somebody in Kalamazoo who we all knew he was dead, we saw his grave, we were at the funeral, we know he's dead, and then you see him alive again. Think with me now, right? I mean, that would have massive ramifications, right? The, the newspapers would be full of it. The television, the radio, and the, and the, and the people would be buzzing back and forth. Is, is, how is it possible? Could it really be true? And that's what happened in the life of Jesus. After he raised Lazarus, you might say, the, uh, the, well, the, the, the title of the sermon is The Unveiling of Israel's King, right? Now you might say the veil was pulled back. People no longer could deny this Jesus is somebody special because we know that this man Lazarus was dead. And people saw Jesus call him out of the grave. That event sparked an earthquake in Israelite society. In fact, you read that even the Pharisees are, are uh, deeply concerned about this, right? Because we read in verse 10, the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. That means the, the leaders of the Jewish religion wanted to put, they wanted to put Jesus to death already. They, we know that. But now they want to put Lazarus to death, to death as well because he's walking evidence that Jesus is a miracle worker and that Jesus is who he says he is. They need to get Lazarus out of the way because he's a standing, walking, living, breathing argument against their religion and for the religion of Jesus. So that's Lazarus. Many are leaving the Jewish religion and are joining Jesus. We see that in verse 11. Because on account of him, that is on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away, that is going away from Judaism, and were believing in Jesus. So that's Lazarus. Now we come to Jerusalem. Let's think for a moment about what's happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, my friends, at this time of the year is packed. Packed with crowds and crowds of people. Again, there are conflicting reports. Uh, sometimes it's, you can't imagine how this could even be possible that there were almost a million people in Jerusalem at this time because it was the celebration of the Passover. And you'll remember that the Passover requires that you come to Jerusalem, to the temple of God, to offer that lamb. So the people came to Jerusalem. Many of them were Jews who lived outside of Palestine, who used a different currency. They needed to have their money exchanged and changed over to Jewish currency. They needed to buy the lamb, right? Remember the, uh, so many days before the, uh, 10 days before Passover, you had to purchase, sorry, the 10th of the month, you had to purchase a, a lamb. And then you had to keep that lamb in the house with you for four, to the 14th day of the month. You killed that lamb, right? And that's how the Passover feast went. So Jerusalem is packed with people. But we read something else about Jerusalem. And you can see that in John 11 and verse 56. Turn there to me. Turn there with me. John 11 and verse 56. Or verse 55. Let's back up to verse 55. Where it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover 
to purify themselves, right? They had to take that ritual purification before they were allowed to enter the temple gates. And then in verse 56, notice what it says. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? In other words, there's this rumor going around Jerusalem that Jesus may come to the Passover feast that year. That he may come to Jerusalem and he might celebrate Passover there as well. And of course, combine that with the news that Jesus raised a man from the dead. Now, now don't forget, Jesus had healed people, right? That was People knew about those, but raising somebody from the dead was a completely different thing, right? But now whispering back and forth. Is Jesus going to come? Do you think he's going to come this year? I think he's going to come. I've heard that he, have you heard? You know, and, and you know how these things go, right? And so crisscrossing through the crowds in Jerusalem is this <clears throat> news that Jesus might come to Passover that year. And of course, you know that in the back of the Jewish mind, it's always this idea of Messiah. Our king. Maybe Jesus is Messiah. Maybe he is the king that will drive out the Roman people, that will set Jerusalem free from all its enemies and raise up a mighty kingdom. Right? You can think, some time ago we had a sermon on Psalm chapter 2. Remember what it said there? <clears throat> the Jews misunderstood this, of course. But it says in Psalms, Psalm 2, right? He who sits in the heavens last, the Lord scoffs at, him, at them. Then he will speak to them, that is to the enemies of the Jewish people, in his anger, terrify them in his fury, Right? I will, he says, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Well, the Jews have these prophecies in the back of their mind. And they're thinking, maybe this is the time when, when Jesus is going to come as the great Messiah and he's going to shatter them like a clay pot and crush them with a rod of iron. Right? And their, their minds are full of this. And they're, they're excitedly whispering it back and forth. So that's what's happening then in Jerusalem. And now we come to Jesus. To Jesus himself. Because we read in John chapter 12 that he's already in Bethany. And he now, uh, on, the, on the next day in, in verse 12, John 12 and verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. So understand now that Jesus is leaving Bethany, right? Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. He's leaving Bethany. He has a large crowd following him from Bethany, right? Because they're excited about him. Now Jesus is going to make his triumphal entry. Jesus has gotten a, a, a foal of a donkey, right? He's riding upon this donkey, which, by the way, was no sign of... Um, some people have said that that was a sign of, of um, poverty, Right? It wasn't, though. Riding on a donkey was a, a, a royal thing. Uh, it was very different than riding on a war horse. I'll say something about that later. But still, it was, a, it was a, a seat of honor to be riding on this donkey. So Jesus is leaving Bethany. But then out of Jerusalem, right, comes this other crowd whispering amongst themselves, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, right? And the crowd begins to whip itself up into this furor. They begin to tear off palm trees and to throw them in the road. People even take their garments, their cloaks, and lay them down on the, uh, on the road for Jesus to ride on as a mark of honor. And Jesus has this donkey to ride on. The congregation, I especially want to point out to you that in this time, 
How different this is from the way Jesus usually acted throughout his ministry. This is very different. Let me, let me just give you some of these examples. Some of these other miracles which Jesus performed. In Matthew 9 and verse 30, we read that Jesus uh, healed the blindness of blind, some blind people. And then in verse 30, Jesus says, and their eyes were open, so the miracle was successful. Of course it was. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's, that's so different. That, that seems so odd to us. That Jesus came to this earth to proclaim himself as the Messiah, as the Savior of sinners. And yet when he does a miracle, he commands the people... Don't tell anybody about this. Then in Matthew 12, verse 16, we see a similar story. This is where uh, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, right? He stretches out his hand. And then the same thing. Jesus warned them, that is all the people who he healed on this occasion, not to tell who he was. Don't tell anyone what happened to you. Don't tell people who I am. I continue in Mark in chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 43, Jesus cures a leper. What leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Now, of course, verse 45 says, But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, to spread the news around. He couldn't keep the news to himself. But we still ask ourselves, Why does Jesus want to keep himself under so much of a cover? Why does he keep as a secret almost his power and the person who, who he was? In Mark chapter 8, we have a similar instance. Mark chapter 8 and verse 29. Jesus says to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. That seems like the opposite of what we would expect. In John chapter 6, I won't turn there, but you remember that Jesus did a miracle there and immediately the people wanted to crown him king. They wanted to make him their leader. And Jesus pushed it away. He refused. He left and walked away. Now, why was this? Well, we're not explicitly told in Scripture why Jesus did that. But it seems very likely that Jesus wanted to prevent the masses from thinking of himself as their earthly king with an earthly kingdom. Jesus wanted to prevent that. He knew that if he agreed to become their leader, that if he agreed and he told them, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Yes, I am here to set up a kingdom. That they would so completely misunderstand it, which we know is true, right? They certainly did. At every turn of the way, they wanted Jesus to be a king in shining armor on a white horse that would lead them into battle, right? And of course, Jesus completely rejects that idea of a kingdom. And so Jesus kept it under wraps, you might say. He kept it hidden. 
And he revealed himself to his people, to his disciples, and to others who were willing to listen. But he kept it. I, again, I, I just think in our own terms, we, we talk about like a, a soft launch, as it were, right? He kept it kind of easy because he didn't want this groundswell of support where people would take up arms on his behalf. Again, the Bible doesn't say that explicitly. It seems likely, though, that since people would so misunderstand his real mission, that Jesus kept it more of a secret. But now things change, congregation. Now things change. After the healing of Lazarus, which you might say is the beginning of the end, now Jesus throws off the cover, the unveiling of Israel's king, as I, as I entitled the sermon this morning. Now Jesus takes his place on the donkey. He sits. And he begins his triumphal march to Jerusalem. He does not tell the people to be quiet when they cry out, Hosanna, King of Israel, King of David, Son of David. Right? He does not refuse any of those titles. He does not refuse their worship. He continues the march. And when the crowd from Jerusalem comes to meet him, again, he doesn't say, now be quiet now. Don't keep that to yourself. No. Now the, the cover is off. Now Jesus is marching into Jerusalem and giving them a little taste of what he really is. Of what he really is about. That yes, I really am the king. I am the Messiah, the son of David. And I am coming for your salvation. Now notice he comes riding in on a donkey. Not a war horse. Right? A war horse would send a completely different message. Jesus comes in on a donkey. A donkey was an animal uh, that they was used in times of peace. A donkey is not a war animal, right? You don't charge into battle on a donkey. You charge into battle on a war horse. But now this donkey sends a, a message that Jesus is on a mission of peace. That his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not something that's going to be fought for and won and with a, with a throne, and with borders and boundaries, Jesus' kingdom is of another kind. But now, congregation, the whole world can know it. This is the beginning of the end. In, in one week, in less than one week, Jesus will be in the grave. But now Jesus marches into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. So this is Jesus, the king, hidden. Again, all those previous miracles that he did, he kept himself hidden. But now the king unveiled to all of Israel. Now lastly, unbelief. Because we see the response of the Jewish people. Right? We see that in John 12 at the end there. Of how Jesus spoke to them so clearly. About his own person. About who he was. And yet the Jews responded in unbelief. John 12 and verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. You know, Jesus, when he began his ministry, the very first words out of his mouth were, Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And Jesus' ministry was a ministry calling for repentance. He called people to turn, turn away from this world, turn away from sin. And follow me. That's what repentance is. Turn and follow me. And Jesus is crying out to the Jewish people. Preaching and exhorting to them to turn. His whole ministry was like that. Even when he was, was preaching in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now that's not the kind of kingdom the Jewish people were hoping for. 
That's not what they were looking for. That's not what they wanted. But Jesus says it again. Blessed are you. Blessed are they that have been persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. That's not the kind of kingdom the Jewish people wanted. They didn't like reproach and persecution. But Jesus comes again and again. A congregation in the, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 19. We read something of Jesus' heart as he approaches the city of Jerusalem. As he's marching, as he's, well, he's not marching, he's rocking out of him. And, and the uh, and people who have been to Israel say that, uh, that the road to Jerusalem, one of the roads to Jerusalem, is, is very unique and very special because as you wind your way through the countryside, you suddenly come around a turn. And suddenly, you come into full view of the city. The city is hidden from you. But as you come around that turn, the whole city comes open to you. I've not seen that myself, but a number of people have, have told me that. And evidently, that's the road that Jesus is on. Because in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, we read, When he approached Jerusalem. You see Jesus there? The crowd is making this... They're hollering and yelling, right? Hosanna, throwing palm branches in front of him. Jesus is riding on this donkey and he comes around that turn. And there he sees the city. And congregation, the city of Jerusalem at this time was one of the seven wonders of the world. There was nothing like it. Herod's temple was spectacular beyond description. It glowed white in the sunlight. There was gold. It was beautiful. Herod was a, a tremendous builder and he had built the city up to a tremendous state of beauty. And when Jesus comes around that corner, he doesn't, he doesn't say his breath was taken away when he saw how beautiful the city was. What does it say? In verse 41, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is the unbelief of the Jewish people. And when Jesus see it, sees it, he weeps. One, one writer I, I read this week so strikingly said that Jesus, we don't read that he wept before Pilate. We don't read that he wept when he was whipped and beaten by the Roman soldiers. We don't even read that he wept on the way to the cross. All those sufferings he could look at. But when he sees the unbelief of the Jewish people, when he sees the glory and the beauty of their city, but when he sees their own rock-hard hearts, that will not bend, that will not turn, that will not repent. He weeps. You see the love of the Savior, don't you, congregation, in such a powerful way that he weeps over the unbelief of this wicked city because he also sees in his prophetic eye what's coming. And we read that even at that time in John 12, there was that thunderclap, right? There was this, this clap of thunder and Jesus and, and God the Father spoke and said, I have glorified you. And I will glorify you again. And Jesus says, that wasn't for me. That was for you. But the Jewish people 
have now been judged by God with hardness of heart. And they are not able to turn to hear the gospel and to hear it with faith. Palm Sunday is often associated with a, with a happy time in the church congregation. It's not a happy time. Jesus' triumphal entry was his last offer of grace to the Jewish people until it went down. It was done. No more calls. No more repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Jewish city, the Jewish people within it, are locked down in unbelief. Now, not all of them, right? We, we read the glad report that some even of the rulers of the Jewish, of the Jewish religion came to Christ. Now, they, they had a very weak faith, right? They didn't want to confess him openly, but at least they believed in Jesus and came to him. But it's a sad story, congregation. We see Jesus coming into the city. His glory is unveiled now. People see him as a king. But only days later, they cry for his blood. They cry out for his crucifixion. That's not the kind of kingdom they were looking for. That's not the kind of king they wanted. And they, you might say, as we would say in our language today, they kick Jesus to the curb, right? They, they, have, they don't want anything to do with that. And Jesus is nailed to a cross. Dear congregation, let me make some points of application. And I want to look at Jesus this morning. I want to see him in an application as a king, as weeping, as warrior. And as king, dear congregation, I want you to see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. And I want you to think about your own profession of Christ this morning. And let me ask you what sort of king you're looking for this morning. That when you came into this church this morning, what sort of king? And the related question, what sort of kingdom are you seeking? Are you looking for? Because, you know, we can be pretty hard on the Jews, right? That they wanted an earthly kingdom. But what sort of kingdom are we pursuing in our life? Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Is that the kingdom you're looking for? Is that the kingdom you're looking for? Or like the Jews where you say, no, that's not the kingdom I'm looking for. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for the glory of this world. I'm looking for the riches and the wealth that can come to me by hard work. By advancing my cause and my business in this world. Or do you see the world congregation as Jesus sees it? A lost world. A world that needs salvation. A world that needs saving grace. A world that needs repentance. Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Maybe you say, that's not what I signed up for when I became a Christian. I know you don't say that because you know it's not the right thing to say. But let's look at our hearts, congregation, and ask ourselves, what really are we chasing in this world? What really are we pursuing This is such a difficult word for us to accept. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. The humility of a child. The weakness of a child. But we pride ourselves on our strength. 
Jesus says, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And congregation, if you're in this building today, you're rich. Compared to the peoples of this world, we are fabulously rich, fabulously privileged people. We know that. It's so hard for rich people to come into the kingdom of heaven because the door into the kingdom of heaven, may I say that this morning, is so low. You have to stoop to get in that door. The proud person, the ambitious person, the rich person can't get through that door because he stands too high. He stands too tall. Now, of course, many, many rich people have been in the kingdom of heaven. But they didn't set their heart on their riches. Right? They saw their riches as something given them by God to be used for His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom. The Jews shouted for joy when Jesus made a triumphal entry. But not when He was crucified. Not when He took up His cross. Then they all abandoned Him. Well, congregation, as we see Jesus as king this morning, I hope that we would say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the response we should have. When everybody else leaves Jesus behind, our response should be, Lord, where else can we go? The riches of this world will not satisfy my heart. But Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And we get in behind Jesus and we follow him. Congregation, I come to my second point then of seeing Jesus as weeping. Seeing Jesus as weeping. And congregation, I ask you to look into the heart of Jesus this morning. To look into the heart of Jesus this morning. Because still in 2022, Jesus sees unbelief as the greatest sin that a person can commit. Jesus stands with his hands extended. He calls to the nations. He says, come. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. May I say it this way, this morning, congregation, that he rides through this church on a donkey this morning. Not on a war horse. That's my last point. I'll say something about that too. But today, congregation, is still the day of grace. Do you see what Jesus said here in Luke 19? He says, if only you had known the time of your visitation. That means the time of God's gospel grace. This is the time when God stands with his hands extended. This is the time, congregation, when the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, All day long have I stretched out my hands to a wicked and to a gainsaying people, a stubborn people. Congregation, the preaching of Passion Weeks this year is God still rides on that donkey. Jesus is still bringing the message of peace. He's still bringing that message of forgiveness. That no matter what sins you may have committed in your life, no matter how much guilt you've run up in God's book, congregation, He still stands. He still rides. He still comes even to the city of Jerusalem. Even with all the stiff-necked, stubborn Jewish people in Jerusalem who refused to bow before him, still Jesus comes even to them. And he says, that thundercloud, those words from God the Father were not for me, but for you. But for you. 
happy message that is congregation for sinners. And what a wonderful call when Jesus cries out. And look at the language there, John 12, verse 44. It doesn't say Jesus called or he, he spoke or he commanded. It says he cried out. And he's still crying it out this morning, dear friends. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And then these remarkable words in verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, in other words, he lives in unbelief, I do not judge him. Now that, that may have puzzled us, but congregation, what, that, what Jesus is saying is, I don't judge him now. Because this is the day of your visitation. This is your day of grace. This is the day of salvation. This is the day when Christ stands and calls, come, turn, follow me. But Jesus doesn't preach congregation from a position of weakness. It may seem that way, but it's not that way. Because Jesus goes on, he says, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So congregation, we see Jesus as king. We see Jesus as weeping. But now it's time to turn to the last page of the book and to see Jesus as warrior. Today Jesus rides through the church on a donkey. An animal of peace. But there comes a time, congregation, when Jesus will ride through on a horse. And in Revelation 19, in verse 11, we read such a radically different picture. Really, I would appreciate, congregation, if you would take your Bible and turn there with me to see it with your own eyes. In Revelation 19, in verse 11. Turn there with me, please. Revelation 19, verse 11. This is page 1239. 1,239. Look at this picture of Jesus now that we see here. And I saw heaven opened. I'm in verse 11 of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And congregation, look at the difference now in verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. Congregation, there were tears coming from the eyes of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem the first time. But now flames of fire. On his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Congregation, from Jesus' mouth used to come, repent. Come, turn, follow me. But now a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. In other words, he treads down under his feet the enemies of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it continues. You see the different picture there, don't you, congregation? What a different Jesus this is than the one who stood on the hills of Palestine and cried out, Come, drink of the water that I bring. But now he stands, congregation, on a white horse, a sword in his mouth, 
fire in his eyes and judgments under his feet. Congregation, that's why I said Jesus does not plead with his people in vain. He does not plead with them. He does not call to them in weakness. He calls to them sincerely and lovingly. Congregation, there's another day coming when Jesus will be warrior. When Jesus will judge the nations. And we can rejoice in that as his people. Knowing that that is our victory. When Jesus comes the second time unto salvation. But if we're not believers this morning. Then we know that Jesus is not coming then. To take us. To save us. To bring us into his kingdom. But he comes to judge us. He comes to, he comes to tread us down under his feet. Under the wrath of God. Congregation. This morning, I pray that every one of us would get in behind Jesus, would follow him into that city, that we would say with Peter, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then we can have the assurance, congregation, that Jesus is not just our Savior, but also our warrior, who will protect us and care for us and keep us clear of the terrible judgments of God that will come on all those who deny him and who walk a different way. May God bless these words to his congregation for his name's sake. Let us pray. Lord, we read in the scriptures this morning of a tender, loving Jesus calling an unbelieving people to himself. Still calling, still writing, still holding out loving hands, saying, follow me. Look to me all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. But Lord, we also saw a different picture of Jesus coming in judgment on a horse with fire in his eyes, a sword in his mouth and judgments under his feet. Grant, O Lord, that these two pictures that we saw of Jesus today would lead us to commit ourselves to you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength in true faith. Lord, I pray for the youngest one here amongst us, that our children, too, would put their hand in Jesus. I pray for our young people, Lord, that they, too, would follow you and commit themselves to you, would pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the old. Perhaps they have been walking with you for many years already. But Lord, this morning, that we would get up once more and get behind Jesus and follow him. That we would enter into him, enter into that city with him. And not just to enter triumphantly with him on Palm Sunday, but to even walk with him to the cross. To suffer with him, to bear his reproach, and to go forward outside the camp with him. Even, Lord, as Paul has taught us to be crucified with him and to be buried with him. And to know that one day we shall be raised with him to newness of life. Lord, will you please remember us then this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would bring us back this evening for a worship service again, that we might have the great privilege of once more sitting under your holy word. Lord, will you visit us, make us to know your presence this day, be our teacher, our guide, our king, and may we know great joy in walking with you. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.